Disc 8. Folk continued to be much enjoyed by a minority. Stars like Billy Connolly cut their teeth on folk. But outside the Celtic nations, the revival was pretty much doomed from the beginning. Any movement so suffused with nostalgia and gentle humour, played on instruments with minimal amplification, is unlikely to cut the mustard in an age of urban consumerism, when the commercial drive is to record and sell short, fast songs for a young and fickle audience, no longer interested in the struggles of their grandparents. Any movement so resolutely unfashionable, so tousled, hairy and serious, was unlikely to defeat styles and songs efficiently marketed for the new teenage market. The parallel enthusiasm for modern jazz, which excited the English middle-class youth at the same time, and which seemed so rebellious in a land still contemptuous of Negro culture, fizzled away for similar reasons. Live performance in small clubs and songs that went on for too long and were simply too complicated for everyone to enjoy surrendered to quick, easy music. In a battle between the authentic and the cool, when the fight is pitched for young, urban consumers, it is easy to see what will happen. In the end, for all its beauty and vigour, Britain's folk music revival of the 50s was another exhibition of impotent local revolt against the coming age of America. So was the political cause which so many of the folk and jazz enthusiasts cherished, the campaign for nuclear disarmament. One of its leading figures, the popular historian A.J.P. Taylor, later reflected that CND, like the establishment politicians it opposed, simply overrated Britain's position in the world. We thought that Great Britain was still a great power whose example would affect the rest of the world. Ironically, we were the last imperialists. For a while, the campaign sent a jolt through politics and seemed to all those contemplating the swift extinction of life on the planet far more a moral act than politics as usual. It had begun with a campaign to end the radiation-spreading testing of nuclear weapons, which was causing great alarm. Popular writers, notably J.B. Priestley, and the elderly mathematician and philosopher Bertrand Russell, wrote influential articles proclaiming the moral necessity of renouncing such world-destroying weaponry entirely. The new statesman appealed to Khrushchev to disarm, and to its surprise got a reply back from Moscow, albeit an unhelpful one. The Labour left were almost all committed ban the bombers, as, of course, was the Moscow-funded Communist Party of Great Britain. These strands, along with Quakers, pacifists and certain journalists, eventually found themselves sitting together in the appropriately named Armen Court, home of Canon John Collins of St. Paul's Cathedral, when on the 15th of January 1958 the new organisation was created. A month later, more than 5,000 people turned up for the inaugural meeting at Westminster. Some were arrested when they went on to protest at Downing Street. Though CND would fail to persuade any major British party to renounce nuclear weapons throughout the Cold War, and failed as well to halt, never mind reverse, the build-up of American nuclear weaponry on British soil, it did succeed in dividing the Labour Party and seizing the imagination of millions of people. For a ramshackle left-wing organisation, it behaved in a thoroughly modern and media-savvy way. Its symbol, designed by a professional artist, Gerald Holtham, in 1958, and based on semaphore, became an international brand almost as recognisable as Coca-Cola. Suddenly, all those duffel coats and black jumpers had some decoration. The Aldermaston marches, first from Trafalgar Square towards the base and later in the opposite direction, were never enormous, but they did attract massive press coverage. Its more militant wing, the Committee of a Hundred, using direct non-violent action, managed to get the 89-year-old Lord Russell arrested by police, a considerable act of public relations. Yet, it was, as Taylor described it, 
a movement of eggheads for eggheads. Another historian reflected that it was a classic anti-political movement of the educated, the affluent and the disaffected, a movement rooted in the leafy suburbs of the middle classes, not the slums or council estates. Its members tended to be liberal on other issues too, and to be contemptuous of the organised and stodgy routines of politics, labour politics in particular. By the end of the 50s, radicals found labour entirely unappetising. Now, why was that? Labour destroys its future. When the Conservatives have been out of power, they have tended to think and work hard to change themselves and win it back, the six or seven years after 1997 being an exception. When Labour has lost power, it has tended, after due thought and consideration, to tear itself into small pieces. This was the case in the 50s, in the 70s, and again, most spectacularly, in the 80s. In each case, it was essentially a fight between the Labour left and right, but as befits a party of altruists, it was often also highly personal and vicious. Labour has not had grand family, old-school tie, or clubland cliques as the Tories have. It has had gangs instead. Through most of his time, Attlee had kept the socialist gangs apart and quiet, though he began to lose control when Britain rearmed at the end of the Korean War. From then on, it was mostly gang war. On one side, there were always left-wing true believers who believed the country could be dragged to a pure version of socialism, romantics generally in love with English and Scottish revolutionary socialism, or with Marxism, or both. They were the if-only faction. If only the trade unions could be won by the left, then true socialist policies could be imposed on the party. If only the gang at the top could be kicked out. If only we could force Labour MPs to do what their constituency parties told them to. If only we could capture the National Executive Committee or the Conference Arrangements Committee or some committee or other. If only we could get in, we could nationalise the top 200 companies and then everything would change forever. Few of them, unfortunately for their cause, were working class. Michael Foote was educated at fee-paying boarding schools and came from a family of Cornish Puritans and nonconformists, drunk on books. His father, a solicitor and a Liberal MP, left a collection of 52,000 books, including 240 Bibles, which gives some indication of the family tone. Dick Crossman, whose diaries would later lift the lid on the Wilson years, was a wealthy lawyer's son and Oxford academic. Barbara Castle was from lower down the social tree, a tax surveyor's daughter who nevertheless went to Bradford Grammar School and Oxford. Ian Mikado was unusual in being the child of poor Polish immigrants. His father trained as a rabbi, and his command of English was so poor, he is said to have thought for a while he was living in New York, not London. The great exception was certainly working class. The first leader of the if-onlys was Nye Bevan, the former miner and the minister who had created the National Health Service before his Health Before Guns resignation. By the mid-fifties, his great years were behind him, Though he made some wonderful speeches in opposition and was tough enough to break with his closest supporters over the issue of nuclear weapons, much of his behaviour seemed petulant and self-regarding. Of his great enemy, Hugh Gateskill, he would spit that the man was nothing, 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 or assert, he's an intellectual, I'm a minor. Barbara Castle, who never had an entirely easy relationship with Bevan, noted when she was sitting beside him on a conference platform, I have made a perturbing discovery about him. His favourite doodle is writing his own name. Like a political Dylan Thomas, his lavish talents were only matched by his skill in lavishly squandering them. 
as we have seen, in office he had been a great reforming minister. The bigger the job, the bigger the man he became. In opposition, his charisma was less well employed and his vanity was more damaging. He became smaller. He seemed to carry round with him a kind of portable audience, essential to his well-being, foils to his wit, witty though many were themselves. Yet Bevan had a bewitching charisma that made him the focus for the left, whose positions included an increasingly reflexive anti-Americanism and a doctrinaire insistence on nationalisation and central planning. Bevan was as distrustful of the Soviet Union as the rest of the Labour leadership. There were no illusions about Moscow, particularly after an angry dinner in the Commons at which Khrushchev warned Labour that they must ally with Russia because, if not, they would swat us off the face of the earth like a dirty old black beetle. Though he was easily beaten by Gateskill in the leadership battle in 1955, Bevan's supporters were a formidable crowd in the party throughout this period. In 1952, 57 Labour MPs abstained in a motion on Tory defence spending, which was a measure of their size. The Keep Left group had become the Bevanites, votaries even as they protested their sturdy independence. They were a clique, with their own newspaper, Tribune, and their own social gatherings in the Commons, at Crossman's London House, at a country house, Buscott Park in Oxfordshire, and in Soho restaurants. They saw themselves as the romantic, rackety and principled opponents of the upper-class traitors who were taking over Labour. Soon, inevitably, they were being called a party within a party. As suspicions grew, Bevan attacked Gateskill personally and in public. With support from such unlikely and untrustworthy sources as the right-wing press magnet Lord Beaverbrook, Bevan and his gang started to seriously scare other Labour leaders. Gateskill told a particularly bitter conference that it was time to stop attempted mob rule by a group of frustrated journalists. A half-hearted attempt to expel Bevan from the Labour Party was matched by a half-hearted discussion among his followers about setting up a new socialist party of their own. Eventually Bevan returned to the front line as Shadow Foreign Secretary and later Deputy Leader before dying of throat cancer in 1960. He did not read the New Britain well. His last party speech in 1959 predicted that when the British had got over the delirium of television, realised they were mortgaged to the hilt and understood that consumerism had produced a vulgar society, they would turn to true socialism and we shall lead our people where they deserve to be led. On the other side of the divide were Gateskill and his gang, variously described as the Frognal set or the Hampstead set after the suburban North London house where the Labour leader entertained and the Bevanites believed plotted to abolish socialism and lead the people to a hell of television sets and home ownership. Gateskill was another public schoolboy who had been radicalised by the general strike of 1926 and the Nazi thugs on the streets of Vienna in the late 30s. Like Harold Wilson, he was an economist who had served in government during the war. As Attlee's Chancellor of the Exchequer, he had proved tough. It was his decision to fund rearmament partly by making savings by introducing NHS charges that provoked Bevan's resignation from the Cabinet and began that feud. Gateskill was probably wrong on the numbers, and Bevan right. In public, Gateskill could come over as a prig, with little of Bevan's champagne fizz. All his life, he had been keen on uncomfortable truths. When a small child, he had apparently once startled a passing woman who looked down at him by singing from his pram, Soon shall you and I be lying, each within our narrow tomb. In later life he did not lose this disconcerting style. 
To become Labour leader after only nine years as an MP, replacing the venerable Attlee without a strong base in the trade unions or on the left of the party, was nevertheless a remarkable achievement. Gateskill's mettle was soon tested over the Suez Crisis, when his party political point scoring, after earlier supportive noises, made him hated on the Tory benches. For those who think the Commons has become too much of a bear pit in recent decades, it is worth recording that Gateskill contemplated giving up within a couple of years because the booing and shouting from the Conservative side was such that he felt he could not get a hearing in Parliament. Gateskill has been fondly remembered by historians, partly because of the vivid enthusiasm of his young supporters, who later rose to prominence themselves, Roy Jenkins and Tony Crossland in particular, and partly because he died suddenly at 56. He had many admirable qualities, including infectious enthusiasm for literature, music, dancing and life in general. He was stubborn, brave and loyal, but his record as a party leader was not unspotted. He seriously contemplated loosening the party's links with the unions, dropping nationalisation and changing its name. This was bold, but Gateskill's tactics were nearly disastrous. Against the advice of the Youngbloods, he attempted to remove the pro-nationalisation Clause 4 from the party's rulebook, as Tony Blair would do much later. In the more socialist fifties, it was a fight too far over a matter of symbolism. Gateskill retired hurt in confusion. Beaten at the high point of CND's first crusades on the issue of whether Britain should have her own nuclear weapons, he famously promised to fight, fight and fight again to save the party he loved, turning the defeat into a personal public relations triumph. But having rallied the right of the party, he then confounded them by his equally passionate hostility to British membership of the European Common Market. And he had a tendency to flirt with Tory England, which did not endear him to the party faithful. Yet, what made Gateskill truly interesting as a politician of this era was that he accepted and even revelled in the new consumerism. Bevan and his friends deplored the affluent society and the crass commercialism of the time, and claimed to feel nostalgic for the colder, if nobler, vision of the forties. Gateskill danced, and listened avidly to jazz records, and liked good food and clothes. He had few hang-ups, ideological or otherwise. Gateskill, and those in his set, believed you could have a more equal society without it being cheerless or lacking in fun. The essence of this was set out in a hugely influential book, The Future of Socialism, published in 1956. Its author, Tony Crossland, was one of the wilder spirits of Frognall, who had fought in the war as a paratrooper and was busy rebelling against the harshly puritanical standards set by his well-off parents, who belonged to the Plymouth Brethren sect. Crossland argued that increasing individual rights should be as great an aim for reformers as abolishing capitalism, which was already mostly tamed. Education, not nationalisation, was the key to changing society. Socialists must turn to issues such as the plight of the mentally handicapped and neglected children to the divorce and abortion laws and women's rights in general to homosexual law reform and the end of censorship of plays and books. Many of these things would dominate the Home Secretaryship of his friend Jenkins. He was against hygienic, respectable, virtuous things and people, lacking only in grace and gaiety. He concluded with a famous swipe of the puritanical webs, those Edwardian saints of labourism, Total abstinence and a good filing system are not now the right signposts to the socialist utopia. Or at least, if they are, some of us will fall by the wayside. This was a message that would prove popular with the new middle-class voters Labour needed, if not with the intellectuals and journalists around the party's fringes. It was the moment, really, when for Labour the forties ended, 
and with no intermission, the sixties began. Gateskill himself was forgiven by the party for losing the 1959 election. Had he survived to lead Labour into battle in 1964, he would surely have won then, and the story of Labour politics would have been strikingly different. By 1962, he was utterly dominant inside his party, and increasingly seen outside it as a fresh start. Letter writers and newspaper journalists used language about him which anticipated what was said about Tony Blair before the 1997 election. Like Blair, he managed to come across as less of a party man and more normal than his great rival, a truly interesting prime minister in waiting. None of this was to be. In January 1963, after years of grossly overworking, suffering from a rare and little understood disease of the immune system, he suddenly died. Though there were rumours afterwards that he had been killed by the KGB as part of a plot to put in Harold Wilson, whom the conspiracists believed was a Soviet agent, it seems more likely that this was mere biology interfering with politics, as it does. With a little more medical and other good fortune, the prime ministers of post-war Britain could well have included Herbert Morrison, Rab Butler, Hugh Gateskill, and Ian MacLeod, rather than Attlee, Macmillan, Douglas Hume, and Harold Wilson. But Wilson, it would be. The long-lasting significance of the struggle between the Bevanites and the Gateskillites was that when he became prime minister, he was so crippled by trying to placate the various gangs. That he could offer no clear direction for the country. Leaving mayhem, the British in Africa. A year after Macmillan's triumphant re-election, he made a speech unlikely to be forgotten. One of the bitterer ironies of Suez had been that London, accused by both the Americans and Russians of being a nest of reactionary imperialism, was actually in the middle of frantically trying to get rid of the empire. Indian independence was followed by swift dismantling in two other places: Africa. And the Middle East, the Sudan, scene of British cavalry charges in an early war against militant Islamists, had become independent in 1956. The Gold Coast, one of the most prosperous African colonies, followed a year later as Ghana, and they were followed in turn by a bewildering stream of former African possessions during the 60s: Somaliland, now Somalia; Sierra Leone, the Gambia; Nigeria; Kenya, now Kenya; Tanganyika, now Tanzania. Zanzibar, Northern Rhodesia, now Zambia, Uganda, Nyasaland, now Malawi, Swaziland, and Basutoland, as well as the islands of Mauritius and the Maldives. Some of these countries had been British only for a short time. Others had had large white settler populations who either returned home or tried uneasily to accommodate themselves to the new governments. But the scale and speed of the British scuttle produced remarkably little debate at home. On the far right of British politics, the League of Empire Loyalists protested, but most of the country regarded it all with boredom or amusement. In the late forties, it had been felt both that Africa might become the core of Britain's new world position, and that her countries were far from ready for independence. Within ten years, all this was forgotten. There was a rush to independence, urged on from London. No single speech made more of an impact in seeming to settle the argument than the one Harold Macmillan made in Cape Town in 1960. Known forever as his "wind of change" speech, it was brave not because of what he said, but because the British Prime Minister chose to make it in the white supremacist South African Parliament, in front of men who would be architects of apartheid, horrifying them and appalling a large swathe of Tory opinion back in England, where the right-wing Monday Club was formed in protest. Macmillan announced that there was an awakening national consciousness sweeping through Africa. He told his startled audience, "The wind of change is blowing through this continent." And like it or not, this was simply a fact. Hendrik Verwoerd, the South African Prime Minister, retorted that the Englishman was appeasing the black man, 
adding that they had enough problems in Africa without his coming to add to them. Why had London lost its nerve? Partly, it was the mere experience of looking about. The French were getting out of Africa. So too were the Belgians, leaving behind an appalling and very bloody civil war in the Congo. Private correspondence of Macmillan suggests that he also thought the two world wars had made a fundamental change in the position of the whites around the world. What we have really seen since the war is the revolt of the yellows and blacks from the automatic leadership and control of the whites. It need not, however, be a bloody revolt. The experience of the Gold Coast, which became independent under Dr. Kwame Nkrumah in 1957 with relative ease, suggested to London that there was a gentler way of quitting. On the other side, the vicious war of terrorism against white settlers and blacks who supported them in Kenya, a revolt by the mysterious organization Mau Mau, showed the dangers of hanging on. The Mau Mau rebellion was not an attractive liberation war. It lasted for years and involved gruesome mutilation, dismemberments, rape, and bizarre oaths claimed to be linked to black magic. Very few whites were killed, but there was a terrible black toll. It did not help that the more experienced leaders, such as Jomo Kenyatta, whom we will meet later in a less heroic role, was then locked up, leaving Mau Mau to be run by the young and the angry. The white settlers of the area, who had been among the richest and most self-confident colonials in Africa, responded with vicious militia tactics, taking cash bets for the number of Africans shot or bagged, and keeping scorecards as if they were grouse. The security forces came between the two and suppressed the revolt with classic anti-subversion tactics, though its general found the settlers shady people. I hate the guts of them all. They are middle-class sluts, he told his wife. By the end of the 50s, government forces had killed around 10,000 Kikuyu tribesmen and hanged another thousand. Some 80,000 had been put into grim so-called rehabilitation camps. Eventually, only a hard core of Mau Mau were left, and at one camp, Hola, 11 were murdered by the guards. The story went round the world and caused extreme embarrassment to the government. Enoch Powell made what some thought the greatest parliamentary speech of the century, denouncing British behaviour. Meanwhile, in Nyasaland, another bout of violent repression was going on, with 51 black protesters killed. So, by the time Macmillan made his speech, it seemed that trying to hold on to protect white settlers he anyway despised was even more dangerous than getting out. Macmillan and his Liberal colonial secretary Ian MacLeod have had a good press ever since. They have been seen as liberal, fair-minded, and realistic politicians who realised that the time had come to push ahead even faster with decolonisation, to hit the accelerator and forget the brake. They were undoubtedly influenced by the humiliation of Suez. It was the way the world was going. Yet the story of modern Africa should make anyone look harder at the timing and methods of British decolonisation. This is the failed continent. Lines drawn on the map by British imperial administrators were left to help provoke appalling civil and tribal wars. Men trained at Sandhurst, brought up inside the British Empire, turned into corrupt dictators, and in the worst case, that of Uganda's Idi Amin, a monster. Few of those liberal, highly intelligent liberation leaders, fated in London by the left during the 50s and 60s, turned into great progressive figures back home in Africa. Perhaps the only great exception being Nelson Mandela himself. Military coups, the imprisonment of opposition leaders, tribal feuds, and famines followed. And for all this, the former British rulers must take some responsibility. Did the British scuttle from Africa happen too fast, in a mood of political hysteria and without proper thought for what would follow? The sheer speed may not be as admirable as we have been taught to think. Was there no example of successful British action in withdrawing from old commitments? Luckily for national pride. 
There is another story. It is not simply the tale of the other former colonies, from Singapore to the Caribbean, which thrived, or the prosperity of the so-called white Commonwealth nations. Not all wars were lost. In Korea, for instance, though Kim Il-sung survived to create a bleak and murderous dictatorship behind the armistice line, Mao was frustrated. But the best example of a war eventually won through intelligence in every sense is the one known simply as the emergency. It ran from 1948 to 1960, which must make it the longest emergency ever. Malaya had become a crucial part of the world's industrial system, thanks to seeds from a single tree, brought from Brazil to Kew Gardens in London and grown in a tropical plant house. From there, the rubber plants were taken to Malaya in the 1870s and grew very nicely. By the post-war years, Malaya was producing a third of the world's supply of rubber. With tin, this made it Britain's most profitable colony, a rare exception to the rule. But by the late 40s, there was, almost inevitably, a communist and nationalist insurgency against British rule. It went on for a dozen years and was, to all intents and purposes, a war. It has not been remembered as the Malayan War for a curious reason. The insurance policies of local businesses had clauses in them, suspending cover in time of war, hence emergency. After a bad start, during which the communists tied down a huge British force, murdered many rubber planters and their workers, and when atrocities were committed on the other side, including by the Scots guards against Chinese villagers, a new strategy was developed. It was the achievement of one of the British Empire's last and least known heroes, a clipped and driven soldier called General Sir Gerald Templer. He used helicopters as they had not been used before in warfare. He also moved entire villages away from the jungle to keep them from supporting insurgents and imposed curfews. But beside the unpopular measures, Templer introduced a new hearts and minds approach to win over Malaya's Chinese villages. Roads, clean water, schools, medical centres, elected village councils and relatively restrained policing did more to confound a communist insurgency than the machine guns and helicopters. Eventually, after the communists were defeated, Malaya became independent under a friendly government. As Malaysia, it has thrived. It showed what could be done by a thoughtful and intelligent departing imperial power. After Malaya, no communist insurgency succeeded against British forces in Africa or Asia again. Had the Americans studied Malaya a little more closely, who knows what might have followed in Vietnam. Notting Hill From 1948 until 1962, roughly the period of the Malayan emergency, there had been virtually an open door for immigrants coming into Britain from the Commonwealth or colonies. The British debate over immigration had been hobbled by contradiction. On the one hand, overt racialism had been discredited by the Nazi enemy. Britain's very sense of herself was tied up in the vanquishing of a political culture founded on racial difference. This meant that the few unapologetic racialists, the anti-Semitic fringe or the pro-apartheid colonialists, became outcasts. Official documents would refer to the handful of MPs who were outspokenly racialist as nutters. So unthreatening were they thought to be that Oswald Mosley, who had been funded by Mussolini before the war and would have been a likely puppet leader had Germany invaded Britain, was promptly allowed out of prison after the war to strut on the back of lorries and yell at his small number of unrepentant fascist supporters. Ignoring him, the public propaganda of empire made much of a family of races under the British flag, all cooperating loyally together. In Whitehall, the colonial office strongly supported the right of black Caribbean people to migrate to the mother country, fending off the worries of the Ministry of Labour about the effects on unemployment during downturns. 
when some 500 Caribbean immigrants arrived in 1948 on the converted German troopship SS Windrush. The Home Secretary declared that though some people feel it would be a bad thing to give the coloured races of the Empire the idea that, in some way or the other, they are the equals of people in this country, the government disagreed. We recognise the right of the colonial peoples to be treated as men and brothers with the people of this country. Britain, in short, believed herself to be the logical opposite of Nazi Germany, a benign and unprejudiced world-connected island. The Jewish migration of the 30s had brought one of the greatest top-ups of skill and energy that any modern European state had ever seen. The country, in fact, already had a population of about 75,000 black and Asian people, and labour shortages suggested it needed many more. The segregation of the American Deep South and the arrival of the ideology of apartheid in South Africa were treated alike with high-minded contempt. And yet everyone knew this was not really the whole story. Pre-war British society had never been as brutal about race as France or Spain, never mind Germany, but it was riddled with racialism nevertheless. Anti-Semitism had been common in popular novels and obscure modernist poetry alike. The actual practice of the British upper and middle classes had been close to the colour bar practised by Americans. Africans were tolerated as servants and musicians while in Britain, little more. White working-class people hardly ever came across someone of another colour. During the war, black GIs, though welcomed, had been followed around by awestruck locals, simply wanting to touch them or hear them speak. Almost as soon as the first post-war migrants arrived from Jamaica and other islands of the West Indies, popular papers were reporting worries about their cleanliness, sexual habits and criminality. No dogs, no blacks, no Irish was not a myth, but a perfectly common sign on boarding houses. The hostility and coldness of native British people was quickly reported back by the early migrants. And Hugh Dalton, a cabinet colleague of the high-minded minister quoted earlier, was also able to talk of the pullulating, poverty-stricken, diseased nigger communities of the African colonies. For most people, questions of race were obscure and academic. The country remained overwhelmingly white, and only tiny pockets of colour could be found until the 60s, most of them in the poorest inner-city areas. A quarter of the world was, in theory, welcome to come and stay. There were debates in the Tory cabinets of the Churchill, Eden and Macmillan years, but for most of the time they never got anywhere. Any legislation to limit migration would have kept out white people of the old Commonwealth too, and any legislation which discriminated would be unacceptably racialist. Conservatives, as well as socialists, regarded themselves as civilised and liberal on race. By this, they meant pick and choosy. For instance, in the 50s, the colonial office specifically championed the skilled character and proved industry of the West Indians against the unskilled and largely lazy Asians. Immigration from the Indian subcontinent had begun almost immediately after independence and partition, as a result of the displacement of Hindus and Muslims, but it had been very small. Sikhs had arrived, looking for work particularly in the industrial Midlands and in the West London borough of Southall, which quickly became an Asian hub. Indian migrants created networks to buy and supply the corner shops, which required punishingly long hours, and the restaurants which would almost instantly become part of the British way of life. There were more than 2,000 Indian restaurants by 1970, and curry would become the single most popular dish within another generation. Other migrants went into the rag trade and grew rich. So, immigration continued through a decade without any great national debate. Much of it was not black, but European, 
mostly migrant workers from Poland, Italy, France and other countries who were positively welcomed in the years of skill and manpower shortages. There was a particularly hefty Italian migration, producing a first-generation Italian community of around 100,000 by 1971, to add to the earlier migrations which went back to the 1870s. There was constant and heavy migration from Ireland, mainly into the construction industry, three-quarters of a million in the early 50s and two million by the early 70s, producing little political response except in the immediate aftermath of IRA bombings. There was substantial Maltese immigration, which did catch the public attention because of violent gang wars in London between rival Maltese families in the extortion and prostitution business. Though to be fair to Malta, many of these people had arrived there from Sicily first. There was a major Cypriot immigration, both of Greek Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots, as the divided island became more politically violent. Again, apart from the enthusiastic adoption of plate smashing and moussaka in Greek restaurants in British cities, there was no discernible public fuss. Chinese migration, mainly from the impoverished agricultural hinterland of Hong Kong, can be measured by the vast rise in Chinese fish and chip shops and restaurants, up from a few hundred in the mid-fifties to more than 4,000 by the beginning of the 70s. The Poles, carefully resettled after the war, were joined by other refugees from Stalinism, Hungarians and Czechs, again without any national response other than warm enthusiasm. Thus, if there were clear rules about how to migrate quietly to Britain, they would have started, first, be white, and second, if you cannot be white, be small in number, and third, if all else fails, feed the brutes. The West Indian migration failed each rule. It was mainly male, young, and coming not to open restaurants, but to work for wages which could, in part, be sent back home. Some official organisations, from the National Health Service to London Transport, went on specific recruiting drives for workers, nurses or bus drivers or cleaners, with cheery advertisements in Jamaica for ticket clippers on London buses. Most of the population shift, however, was driven by migrants themselves, desperate for a better life, particularly once the popular alternative of migration to the United States was closed down in 1952. The islands of the Caribbean, dependent on sugar or tobacco for most employment, were going through hard times. As word was passed back about job opportunities, albeit in difficult surroundings, immigration grew fast to about 36,000 people a year by the late 50s. One historian notes the scale of the change. Every two years, a number equivalent to the total non-white national population in 1951 was arriving in Britain. The black and Asian population had risen to 337,000 by 1961, and it was concentrated rather than widely dispersed. Different West Indian groups clustered in different parts of London and the English provincial cities. Jamaicans in the South London areas of Brixton and Clapham, people from Trinidad in West London's Notting Hill, islanders from Nevis in Leicester, people from St Vincent in High Wycombe, and so on. The way these people migrated and made their way had a huge impact on the later condition of post-war Britain and deserves analysis. The fact that so many of the first migrants were young men who found themselves living without wives, mothers or children inevitably created a wilder atmosphere than they were accustomed to in their island homes. They were short of entertainment and short of the social control of ordinary family living. A chain of generational influence was broken and a male strut liberated. Drinking dens, the use of marijuana, ska and blues clubs and gambling were the inevitable result. A white equivalent might be the atmosphere of the Klondike Gold Rush communities, not in general notable for their sobriety and respect for law. 
Early black communities in Britain tended to cluster where the first arrivals were, which meant in the blighted inner cities. There, as discussed earlier, street prostitution was more open and rampant in the 50s than it would later become. It is hardly surprising that young black men away from home often formed relationships with white prostitutes, and that some then went into pimping. This would feed the press and white gang hysteria about blacks. Unsportingly well endowed, it was thought, stealing our women. The combination of fast, unfamiliar music, the illegal drinking and drugs, and the sexual needs of the young migrants combined to paint a lurid picture of a new underworld. It was no coincidence that the Profumo affair had involved a West Indian drug dealer alongside its cast of aristocrats, politicians, good-time girls and spies. More important for the longer term, a rebelliousness was sown in black families, which would be partly tamed only when children and spouses began arriving in large numbers in the 60s and the Pentecostal churches reclaimed at least some of their own. Housing was another crucial part of the story. For the immigrants of the 50s, accommodation was necessarily privately rented since access to council homes was based on a strict list, dependent on how long you had been living in the area. We have already seen how the early squatting revolt was ended by the threat of participants being moved to the back of the council housing queue. So the early immigrants were cooped up in crowded and often condemned old properties, the gaunt Victorian speculative terraces of West London, or the grimy brick terraces of central Leeds. Landlords and landladies were often reluctant to rent to blacks. Once a few houses had immigrants in them, a domino effect would clear streets as white residents sold up and moved. The 1957 Rent Act, initiated by Enoch Powell in his free market crusade, perversely made the situation worse, since it allowed rents to rise sharply, but only when tenants of unfurnished rooms were removed to allow furnished lettings. Powell meant this to allow a cushion of time before rents rose. Its unintended consequence was that unscrupulous landlords, such as the notorious Peter Rackman, an immigrant himself, could buy up low-value rented properties, usually with poorer white tenants in them, and then, if only he could oust the tenants, pack in new tenants at far higher rents. Thuggery and threats generally got rid of the old. New black tenants, desperate for somewhere to live and charged much higher rents, were then imported. The result was the creation of instant ghettos in which three generations of black British would live. The Brixton, Tottenham and Toxis riots of the 80s can be traced back, in part, to the moral effects of early young male migration and the housing practices of the 50s. The other side to the story is the reaction of white Britain. As one Caribbean writer ironically put it, he never met a single English person with colour prejudice. Once he had walked down a whole street, and everyone told me that he or she had no prejudice against coloured people. It was the neighbour who was stupid. If only we could find the neighbour, we could solve the whole problem. But to find him is the trouble. Neighbours are the worst people to live beside in this country. Numerous testimonies by immigrants and in surveys of the time show how hostile local people were to the idea of having black or Asian neighbours. The trade unions bristled against blacks coming in to take jobs, possibly at lower rates of pay, just as they had campaigned against Irish migrants a generation earlier. Union leaders regarded as impeccably left-wing lobbied governments to keep out black workers. They were successful enough for a while to create employment ghettos as well as housing ones, Though in the West Midlands in particular, black migrants gained a toehold in the car-making factories and other manufacturing. Only a handful of MPs campaigned openly against immigration. Powell raised the issue in private meetings, though as a health minister he had been keen enough to use migrant labour. 
but anti-immigrant feeling was regarded as not respectable and not to be talked about. The elite turned its eyes away from the door-slamming and shunning, and escaped into well-meant if windy generalities about the brotherhood of man and fellow subjects of the crown. Most of the hostility was at the level of street and popular culture, sometimes the shame-faced, sorry, the room is taken already variety, and sometimes violent. The white gangs of the teddy boy age went nigger-hunting or black-burying, and chalked the Keep Britain White signs on walls. They may have been influenced by the small groups of right-wing extremists, such as the Union for British Freedom or Mosley's remaining fascist supporters, but the main motivation seems to have been young male competition and territory marking. These were, after all, the poor white inhabitants of the very same areas being moved into by the migrants. All this came to a head in the Notting Hill riots of 1958. Rather like Suez a couple of years earlier, Notting Hill was more a symbol of change than a bloody slaughter. In fact, nobody was killed in the rampaging, and by the standards of later riots, there was little physical damage. Furthermore, the trouble actually started far away from London, in the poor St Anne's district of central Nottingham, and only spread to Notting Hill a day later. Yet it was a large and deeply unpleasant outbreak of anti-immigrant violence, which ran for a total of six days, across two late summer weekends. It was no coincidence that Notting Hill was the area where the rioting happened, as distinct from, say, Brixton, which also had a very large and visible black population by the mid-fifties. It had the most open, well-known street culture for black people, near enough to Soho at one side and the new BBC headquarters on the other, to be advertised and even celebrated by hacks, broadcasters and novelists. It was known for its gambling dens and drinking clubs. It had a resentful and impoverished white population, but also, as two historians of British immigration put it, it had multi-occupied houses with families of different races on each floor. It had a large population of internal migrants, gypsies and Irish, many of them transient single men, packed into a honeycomb of rooms with communal kitchens, toilets and no bathrooms. Into this honeycomb poured a crowd first of tens and then of hundreds of white men, armed first with sticks, knives, iron railings and bicycle chains, and soon with petrol bombs too. They were overwhelmingly young, mostly from nearby areas of London, and looking for trouble. They began by picking on small groups of blacks caught out on the streets, beating them and chasing them. Then they moved to black-occupied houses and began smashing windows. The crowd swelled until they were estimated at more than 700 strong, whipped up by the occasional fascist agitator, but much more directed by local whites. Racist songs and chants of niggers out, the smash of windows, though some local whites protected and even fought for their black neighbours, this was mob violence of a kind Britain thought it had long left behind. It shrunk away again, partly as a result of black men making a stand and fighting back with petrol bombs. There were 140 arrests, mainly of white youths, and though far-right parties continued to organise in the area, there was no discernible electoral impact, or indeed any more serious trouble. The huge press coverage ensured, however, that Britain went through its first orgy of national introspection about its liberalism and its immigration policy, while overseas, racist regimes such as those of South Africa and Rhodesia mocked the hand-wringing British. After the riots, many black people did go home. Returns to the Caribbean soared to more than 4,000. There, West Indian governments expressed outrage at the riot, and made it clear that there would be no action by them to restrict migration in order to appease lawless white thugs. Indeed, the Commonwealth, whose usefulness has been questioned elsewhere in this history, clearly functioned as a kind of doorstop to maintain immigration. 
It retained a loose association between crown, obligation, and common citizenship, which felt real to politicians of both parties. Pressure to close the open border for Commonwealth citizens hardly increased in the Tory Party after the Notting Hill riots, though extra parliamentary campaigns, such as the Birmingham Immigration Control Association, did spring up. Of course, given that the violence was directed against immigrants by whites, it would have been grotesquely unfair had the first reaction been to send people home. Labour was wholly against restricting immigration, arguing that it would be disastrous to our status in the Commonwealth. The Notting Hill Carnival, begun the following year, was an alternative response, celebrating black culture openly. For many black migrants, the riots marked the beginning of assertion and organisation. They were looked back on as a racial Dunkirk, the darkest moment after which the real fightback would start. Only after Macmillan's stunning 1959 general election victory did pressure really begin to build up for some kind of restriction on immigration to Britain. Opinion polls were now showing strong hostility to the open-door policy. Perhaps as important in Whitehall, both the Ministry of Labour and the Home Office wanted a change to help deal with the new threat of unemployment. This was a case of the political class being pushed reluctantly into something which offended their notion of their place in the world, the father figures of a global commonwealth. One study of immigration points out that what was truly remarkable was the passive acceptance by politicians and bureaucrats of Britain's transformation into a multicultural society. Immigration was restricted a full four years after all measures of the public mood indicated clear hostility to a black presence in Britain, and even then it was only done with hesitation. And when the 1962 Commonwealth Immigrants Act finally passed into law, it was notably liberal, at least by later standards, assuming the arrival of up to 40,000 legal immigrants a year, with complete right of entry for their dependents. Even so, it had only gone through after a ferocious parliamentary battle, with the Labour leader, Hugh Gateskill, making emotional and passionate attacks on a measure which was still privately opposed by some of the Tory ministers involved. One particularly contentious issue was that the Republic of Ireland was allowed a completely open border with Britain. This may have seemed only practical politics, given the huge number of Irish people living and working there already, but it offended in two ways. By discriminating in favour of a country which had been neutral in the war with Hitler and declared itself a republic, but against Commonwealth countries which had stood with Britain, it infuriated many British patriots. Second, by giving Irish people a better deal than Indians or West Indians, it seemed, frankly, racialist. The new law created a quota system which gave preference to skilled workers and those with firm promises of employment. In order to beat it, a huge new influx of people set out in 1961 for Britain, the biggest group from the Caribbean, but also nearly 50,000 from India and Pakistan and 20,000 Hong Kong Chinese. This beat-the-ban phenomenon would be repeated later when new restrictions were introduced in the 70s. One historian of immigration puts the paradox well. In the three-year period from 1960 to 1963, despite the intense hostility to immigration, more migrants had arrived in Britain than had disembarked in the whole of the 20th century up to that point. The country would never be the same again. Incident at Birch Grove Yet it was Britain's post-war relationship with Europe, not the fate of the empire, immigration or the Cold War, which produced some of the deepest cracks in British public life. Why should that be? This was not of prime importance to the people of the country, certainly no more so than the cost of living or the building of a multiculture. 
What gave it added importance in the corridors and lobbies of the Palace of Westminster was that Europe was about them. The importance of MPs and ministers, of mandarins and ambassadors. Britain was fading as head of the Commonwealth and had little leverage with the Washington of Eisenhower and Kennedy. Joining the European Economic Community would either, depending on your point of view, give Britain's elite a new, well-appointed and large theatre to try to dominate, or it might push them aside in a babel of competing and alien politicians. By the late fifties, this choice was becoming urgent. The distant echoes ignored by Attlee and Churchill had become a deafening proposition. Across the Channel, they had had the builders in. After the iron and coal community, which the Durham miners were supposed to have been so against, the six founding EU nations—France, West Germany, Italy, Luxembourg, Belgium, and the Netherlands—had kept designing and laying out bigger structures. The European Defence Community had foundered. But in 1955, a breakthrough had happened in the unlikely setting of a small and undistinguished coastal town in Sicily called Messina. Here, the foreign ministers of the Six had agreed to move towards a customs union and combine in transport, atomic know-how, and energy policy. The driving force behind this was a squat pro-British Belgian, now formally revered as a European founding father, called Paul Henri Spark. Later, he stolidly recalled how the ministers had worked through the night to complete the proposal. The sun was rising over Mount Etna as we returned to our rooms, tired but happy. Far-reaching decisions had been taken. The first view from London was that, at any rate, Etna had not erupted. As the negotiations continued in Brussels about what would eventually become the EU, Britain refused to send a minister to take part, choosing instead a formidably bright but middle-ranking civil servant. A trade economist called Russell Bretherton. This fox-like little man with a clipped moustache soon realised two things: he was being treated like a very important person by the Europeans, and second, they were deadly serious about trying to build a new political system. Bretherton was regarded by the French, Belgians, and Germans as national negotiator, when in truth he was a mere observer with written notes about what he could and could not say. In the mythology of the European Union, there is a wonderful story about Bretherton. It tells us that at the end of the negotiations, this starchy representative of Her Britannic Majesty stood up and informed the room, "Gentlemen, you are trying to negotiate something you will never be able to negotiate. But if negotiated, it will not be ratified, and if ratified, it will not work." He is then supposed to have walked out, no doubt clutching his rolled umbrella. Sadly, it seems unlikely that this ever happened, as reported, though it has poetic truth. The continental negotiators were disappointed and shocked by Britain's lack of serious interest, and Bretherton had been given a loftily dismissive brief by his political masters. It was simply less crisp than myth tells us. At any rate, the six shrugged off Britain's attitude. They were still rebuilding shattered cities and healing torn economies, and for them, the coming union was manifest destiny. The Treaty of Rome duly followed in 1957, coming so soon after the humiliation of Suez. It was greeted by increasingly agitated head scratching in Whitehall, and for Britain the world was differently shaped. The Commonwealth then meant more than a worthy outreach program for the royal family. Its food and raw materials poured into Britain, and there was an illusion that Britain's manufacturing future would be secured by selling industrial goods to kith and kin in Durban, Dunedin, Canberra, and Calgary. In came butter, oil, meat, aluminium, rubber, tobacco, and wood pulp. Out would flow engines, cars, clothing, aircraft, and electronics. The poorer members of the Stirling Club kept their reserves in London, 
So Britain was banker as well as manufacturer for much of Africa and parts of Asia too. Most people believed that to cut adrift the Commonwealth and join a new club would be economically ruinous as well as immoral. For Labour, Wilson told the Commons that if there has to be a choice, we are not entitled to sell our friends and kinsmen down the river for a problematical and marginal advantage in selling washing machines in Dusseldorf. Later, Hugh Gateskill told the Labour Conference that membership of the European Economic Community would mean the end of a thousand years of history. How can one seriously suppose that if the mother country, the centre of the Commonwealth, is a province of Europe, it could continue to exist as the mother country of a series of independent nations? Yet at just this time, the European market, thirsting for new consumer goods, was growing spectacularly fast, while the Commonwealth trading group was by comparison falling behind. As we have seen, most of the poorer countries did not want Britain anyway. The richer nations of the old Commonwealth Australia, New Zealand, Canada and even semi-detached South Africa would soon turn to the United States for their consumer goods. Rileys would not long compete with Cadillacs. Yet membership of the EEC would subordinate Britain in important ways to foreigners. This was recognised from the first. There was no illusion. Independence would be lost. Other forms of subordination and loss of independence had already happened. The foundation of the United Nations, the post-war economic system and the establishment of NATO involved relinquishing traditional freedoms of action. Those could be painful, as Suez and the various financial crises had been. Yet there seemed to be good military and security reasons there. Europe was something different. Those who had looked clearly at the Treaty of Rome were struck by its overwhelming ambition. Lord Kilmuir, Harold Macmillan's Lord Chancellor, told him that Parliament would lose powers to the Council of Ministers, whose majority vote could change British law, that the Crown's power over treaties would partly shift to Brussels, and that British courts would find themselves in part subordinate to the European Court of Justice. He made it all clear in later parliamentary debates, though this truth was hardly rammed home to the millions outside the world of high politics. Macmillan himself tended to obscure it in windily reassuring words, the old actor-manager trying to keep the whole theatre happy. But Kilmuir spoke out, and so did Lord Hume, the future Prime Minister. Had Britain been involved from the start, as even the French wanted, the EEC, eventually the EU, would have developed differently. There would certainly have been less emphasis on agricultural protection and more on free trade. Europe might have been a little less mystical and a little more open, perhaps more democratic, though this is difficult in so many languages. At any rate, the moment passed. Even after the shock and humiliation of Suez, the Commonwealth and relations with the Americans took precedent for London. The struggle to keep in the nuclear race meant private deals with Washington, which infuriated Paris. After the Treaty of Rome took effect at the beginning of 1958, French attitudes hardened. General de Gaulle, who had felt humiliated by Churchill during the war, returned as President of France, too late to stop the new European system which he had opposed on traditional nationalistic grounds and therefore determined that it should at least be dominated by France. In the words of diplomats and journalists at the time, there could not be two cocks on the dunghill. Macmillan, always a keen Europeanist, became worried. Various British plots intended to limit the six and hamper their project had failed. London had tried to rival the new common market with a grouping of the excluded countries, Britain, Austria, Denmark, Portugal, Norway, Switzerland and Sweden, calling it the European Free Trade Association, EFTA, or the Seven. 
This was a poor arithmetical point, since the seven had a smaller population than the six, were geographically scattered and far less determined. Efter was a petulant minuet of the wallflowers. Roy Jenkins, always an ardent pro-European, described it as a foolish attempt to organise a weak periphery against a strong core. By 1959, Macmillan was worrying that, for the first time since the Napoleonic era, the major continental powers are united in a positive economic grouping with considerable political aspects, which might cut Britain out of Europe's main markets and decisions. Soon, in his diaries, he was sounding even more alarmed, talking of a boastful, powerful Empire of Charlemagne, now under French but bound to come under German control. There was much self-deception about the possible deal that could be struck. Macmillan's team, centred on Edward Heath, hoped that somehow the training system of the Commonwealth-supporting English-speaking farmers across the world could be accommodated by the protectionist system of Europe. They seemed to have thought that any loss of sovereignty would be tolerable if this deal could be struck. Macmillan might have seemed as safely steeped in tradition as country houses and the novels of Trollope, but he had nothing like the almost spiritual reverence for the House of Commons felt by Enoch Powell or, on the other side of politics, Gateskill. In the early 60s, the battle over Britain's coming loss of sovereignty was postponed because British entry was blocked, brutally, publicly and ruthlessly. Two scenes tell the story. The first occurred in November 1961 at Birch Grove, Macmillan's country house in Sussex, a substantial pile with stunning views to the South Downs. De Gaulle was due to come to Britain for talks and told the Prime Minister that, rather than visit Downing Street, he would prefer to come to his private home two old comrades together. And they were, in some ways, old friends. During the war, as the leading British minister in North Africa, Macmillan had been crucial in helping de Gaulle through an immense crisis. De Gaulle, leader of the Free French, was struggling to dominate the coming government in exile, which would take power in France after its liberation. His opponent was a right-wing general, who had tolerated pro-Vichy allies, but de Gaulle's arrogance and refusal to compromise with him so infuriated Roosevelt and Churchill that they wanted him kicked out of the exiled administration. Macmillan, realising de Gaulle's huge potential, had worked frantically to soften Churchill and to shore up the general's position. De Gaulle was grateful to Macmillan personally, but he left North Africa more than ever convinced of the danger to France of a coming Anglo-American alliance which would try to dominate the world. This was the background to his arrival in Sussex, one of the oddest summits in Franco-British history. To the annoyance of local gamekeepers and farmers, the woods surrounding Birch Grove had been filled with French and British police and their dogs, though, to the Prime Minister's delight, one of the Alsatians did bite a Daily Mail reporter on the bottom. Lady Dorothy, Macmillan's wife, had been warned by the Foreign Office that she would have to find space in the fridge for the French President's blood, since he travelled with a stock for transfusion in case of an attempted assassination. Mrs. Bell, the family cook, then refused to have it in the kitchen fridge, which was full of haddock and all sorts of things for tomorrow. Another fridge was set up in a squash court. When the talking finally started, the two leaders were interrupted by an angry gamekeeper who protested that the police dogs were ruining the prospects for shooting that weekend. The Gaul was perplexed, Macmillan hugely amused. After apologising to the gamekeeper, they exchanged blunt views. Macmillan argued that European civilization was being threatened from all sides, and that if Britain was not allowed to join the common market, he would have to review everything, including keeping British troops in Germany. If de Gaulle wanted an empire of Charlemagne, it would be 
on its own. The French president replied that he didn't want Britain to bring in its great escort of Commonwealth countries. The Canadians and Australians were no longer Europeans. Indian and African countries had no place in a European system, and he feared Europe being drowned in the Atlantic. In short, he simply did not believe that Britain would ditch its old empire, and if it did, he thought it would be a Trojan horse for the Americans. These seem formidable objections, points of principle that should have been seen as a clear warning. Yet the detailed and exhaustive talks about British entry chugged along despite them. Edward Heath clocked up sixty-three visits to Brussels, Paris, and other capitals, covering fifty thousand miles as he haggled and argued. But by then, Macmillan was a fast-fading figure, a natural intriguer who had risen to power on the blooded back of Eden. He was obsessed by possible political coups against himself, and increasingly and rightly worried about the weak state of the economy. He was failing in Europe and looked old when seen with a dapper young President Kennedy. After an unpopular budget, Macmillan drafted an alternative policy based on more planning and decided to sack his chancellor, a close friend, Selwyn Lloyd. The news was leaked to the papers, and over a brutal and panicky 24 hours in July 1962, Macmillan expanded the circle of his sackings ever more widely, removing a third of his cabinet ministers from their jobs without notice. In what became known as the Night of the Long Knives, Macmillan called in and dismissed a succession of bewildered, then outraged colleagues. One protested that his cook would have been given more notice. Macmillan's official biographer describes it as an act of carnage unprecedented in British political history. The press portrayed him as a somewhat crazed executioner. In the Commons, Jeremy Thorpe, the Liberal leader, told him, "Greater love hath no man than this, that he lays down his friends for his life." The reaction seems odd decades on, when ruthless cabinet reshuffles have happened so often, though never again on this scale. Many of those sacked deserved to lose their jobs, and Macmillan, far from relishing the butchery, found it made him vomit. But it was the final failure of Saint-Froid. In November, Macmillan returned to his argument with de Gaulle, this time in the Grand Château of Rambouillet, a Renaissance confection south of Paris, which has been used by French presidents for scores of summits as well as summer holidays. The circumstances were almost as odd as at Birch Grove, and again centered on the issue of pheasant shooting. Though de Gaulle did not shoot himself, he organized a fairly comprehensive welcoming slaughter, standing behind Macmillan and other guests and commenting loudly every time they missed. There was much use of trumpets, and the beaters were soldiers. Macmillan shot seventy-seven birds. But now, on his home turf, de Gaulle's objections to British membership were even more aggressively expressed. If Britain wanted to choose Europe, she would have to cut her special ties with America. At one point. Macmillan broke down in tears of frustration at the Frenchman's intransigence, leading de Gaulle to report cruelly to his cabinet later. This poor man, to whom I had nothing to give, seemed so sad, so beaten, that I wanted to put my hand on his shoulder and say to him, as in the Edith Piaf song, "Ne pleurez pas, milord." Cruel or not, it was a significant moment for Macmillan, for the Tories, and for Britain. The Edwardian Act now seemed weak and old, not impressive. Then, a few months later, in early 1963, de Gaulle's "non" was abruptly announced in a Paris press conference, causing huge offence in Britain. A visit by Princess Margaret to Paris was cancelled. At the England-France Rugby International at Twickenham, a few days later, England won 6-5, and the captain assured Heath, the failed negotiator, that he had had a word with the team and told them 
This was an all-important game. Everyone knew what I meant and produced the necessary. Macmillan himself bitterly recorded in his diary that the French always betray you in the end. Tales of Yankee Power In 1962, the world had come to the brink of nuclear war during the Cuban Missile Crisis. The people living round Scotland's Holy Loch, where Macmillan had allowed the Americans to base the first nuclear submarines, immediately realised the gravity of the Cuban crisis when they awoke in the night to the unfamiliar sound of silence. The humming of motors on the loch they had become so used to had suddenly ceased, and when morning broke they saw that the US submarines had slipped away to prepare their nuclear attack on Russia. In Whitehall, the historian Peter Hennessy believes that Macmillan was preparing for a cabinet meeting which would have authorised the first stage of hiding his government underground. There were no illusions about what a missile strike would mean. In 1955, secret government papers on the impact of hydrogen bombs stated that the effect on dense populations would remain beyond the imagination until it happened. Whether this country could withstand an all-out attack and still be in any state to carry on hostilities must be very doubtful. How many H-bombs would it take to wipe out the British military state? At an eerie encounter in 1961 between the Russian leader Nikita Khrushchev and the British ambassador Sir Frank Roberts, who found themselves together at a ballet performance in Moscow, exactly this issue came up. Khrushchev asked Roberts how many it would take and he replied, loyally hoping to limit the scale of any planned strike, that Britain would be destroyed by six H-bombs. The Soviet leader told him that optimists at the Soviet Forward Command headquarters in East Berlin had reckoned Britain would take nine. In fact, said Khrushchev, the Soviet general staff had a higher opinion of the UK's capacity to resist and had earmarked several scores of bombs for use against Britain. In the face of this horror, the British government had built huge networks of bunkers with food and water supplies, emergency generators, communication systems, decontamination suits and the rest in order to maintain some vestigial state alive after the Holocaust. Plans for regional command centres and what has been described as a form of Cromwellian military dictatorship with martial law and the shooting of civilians who resisted were well advanced. By the early 60s, Macmillan had his post-nuclear government system ready. Whitehall had earmarked 210 people who would run the remnant of a country, from chiefs of staff and intelligence officers to typists and clerks. They would be rushed to Turnstile, the top-secret underground bunker system with 60 miles of tunnels built deep under the Cotswolds at Corsham. Everyone else, including the wives, husbands and children of those ordered to the bunkers, would have been left to burn, die of radiation poisoning or otherwise expire. Sir Roderick Braithwaite, later chairman of the Joint Intelligence Committee, said of all this planning that it was inescapable, it was necessary, and it was lunatic. Something of the same mix of fatalism and fascination underpinned the determination of successive British governments to persevere with unindependent nuclear weapons, something to chuck back in the final hour. We have seen how, under Attlee and Churchill, Britain struggled to create her own nuclear deterrent, and did so hoping to maintain her independence from America. For a brief period of five or six years, Bevan's belief in the possibility of a genuinely independent British bomb was vindicated, but in the Macmillan years all this changed. It is striking 
that the original clinching argument for British nuclear weapons, which was that they would give Britain's politicians special status and leverage to influence Washington, so quickly collapsed. Leverage and dependency rarely go together, and it is even more striking that when the argument collapsed, there was no radical rethinking of Britain's nuclear posture. In government, nobody seemed to notice. The RAF had been assembling a great fleet of V bombers, Valiants, Victors, and finally Vulcans, intended to fly over Russia and drop free-falling nuclear bombs. Like the bombers, the bombs had been developed independently at Oldermaston. They continued to grow in destructive power. Giant squat tubes with wings and names such as Blue Danube, Yellow Sun, or Red Beard. But the V bomber fleet had been running late. So in 1958, as a stopgap, Macmillan allowed 60 huge American Thor missiles to be stationed in Britain. The UK's intercontinental ballistic missiles, Blue Streak, used liquid propellant, which had to be stored separately, creating too long a preparation period in a nuclear emergency. British planners believed they would have as little as two and a half minutes' warning of a Soviet missile attack. To defend Blue Streak while the fuel was prepared would have meant building 60 vast silos deep in the ground—an epic project too expensive for Whitehall to contemplate. Two years later, in 1960, when the Soviets shot down an American U-2 spy plane flying far higher than any Victor, Vulcan, or B-52 could manage, the age of the bombers was over. At first, that wasn't clear, and Macmillan began negotiating to buy American air-launched Skybolt missiles. Which it was thought could be used by the V bomber fleet to fire at the Soviet Union from a safe distance. At Camp David, Eisenhower's Spartan retreat in Maryland, outside Washington, Macmillan struck his deal. Britain could buy Skybolt, and in return, the United States would be allowed a deep water base for its latest top-secret missile system, the submarine-launched Polaris, which was to be tested that year. Yet again, events overtook Macmillan. Skybolt turned out to be a dud, or at least too unreliable for the United States. The age of the nuclear submarine had arrived. End of disc eight.